Thank you. Thank you, Lawrence. Take your seats, folks. Just before we turn to um, God's Word this evening, I've got a little thing to do that's a real pleasure to do. We're really praying and wanting to see God call and release people into a whole variety of ministries. And um, over the next little while, actually at the 7 o'clock service on the 1st of September, David Jardine and Rory Blakenox and uh, Stephen from Newton Arge as well, another guy, all three will be ordained for what's called the local ordained ministry. In, in other words, they, they, they serve where the bishop puts them for as long as is his pleasure in a sense. Uh, and uh, David Jardine is going to be working as a prison chaplain in the Mays and at the uh, Young Offenders Centre as well as here in Willowfield and Rory uh, will be leading the church plant up at Money Ray. I have a little legal thing to read here this evening. Notice is hereby given that David Jardine of Edgehill College in the University of Queen's Belfast, now resident in this parish, intends to offer himself as a candidate for the holy office of a deacon at the ensuing ordination of the Bishop of Downendermoor. And if any person knows any cause or just impediment for which the said David Jardine ought not to be admitted into the holy order of deacon, he is now to declare the same or to signify the same forthwith to the Bishop of Down and Dremore. In other words, let the Bishop know if you object, all right? I'm sure you don't. Notice is hereby given that Rory Blakenox of Edge Hill College in the University of Queen's Belfast, now resident in this parish, intends to offer himself as a candidate for the holy office of a deacon at the ensuing ordination of the Bishop of Down and Dremore. And if any in person knows any cause or just impediment for which the said Rory Blake Knox ought not to be admitted into the holy order of deacon, he is now to declare the same or to signify the same forthwith to the Bishop of Down and Remore. Is he here tonight? He sometimes comes on a Sunday night. No, he's not here tonight, so you'll have to go and knock his door, okay? Friends, we're working our way. Can I just hand that to you? We're, we're working our way through John's Gospels, John's Gospel. Uh, these uh, Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings uh, over the summer. Uh, and tonight uh, we land in chapter 16. Reuben having taken us through chapter 15 this morning, we're in chapter 16 this evening. The aged John, just to remind you, is, is writing, he's recollecting, he's recalling the, the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, but he's also interpreting that life in a, in a very theological sort of way, uh, and he's, a, he's applying that life to the, the, the early church and to the church down through the ages right down to our own day. And there's four things that I want to share with us from this chapter this evening, but first of all, I'm going to read the whole chapter, John chapter 16. Uh, it should be on the screen, uh, or uh, if you would uh, follow it in your Bibles, please. John chapter 16. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, 
because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she is sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, uh, whatever you ask of my Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech, the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, 
that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Lord, I pray that you would be our teacher tonight. Holy Spirit, be our teacher. And may we see who Jesus is more clearly. And Lord, we pray that our lives would more uh, diligently seek after following you so that, Lord God, we would give more of who we are, we would give all of who we are to living for Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So we're going to take a journey through uh, these verses. I have four thoughts. The first is based on the first four verses. And it's simply this, that suffering is a present reality for the Christian and for the non-Christian. Suffering is something that's real. It's something that's present. It's something that we don't escape because we're followers of Jesus. Uh, it really does bother me that we seem to have moved into a, a mode of thinking sometimes in the church where if, if, if anything that's negative or, or, or isn't good happens to us, we, we, we somehow think that we have the right to blame God, that somehow we should be exempt from things that happen to other people. But we live in a fallen world, uh, and Christians don't live in a different world in, in, in that sense, in that we for now live in this world where there's sickness, where there's aging. You'll discover that as time goes on, uh, where there's dying, where there's bereavement, where there's accidents that happen. And indeed, even in these last hours, if you've been following the news at all, where, where, where people will do evil things, awful things to, to other people, from rape to murder to abuse to violence. We live in a world where, where Christians aren't exempt from any of these things. I don't know, but my guess is that among the uh, families that have been impacted in America today by those shootings, you will find Christian families. You will probably find Christian parents, Christian children, who are torn to pieces today by the, those violent acts. Christians aren't exempt from living in a world of evil and in a world of darkness. Bad things happen to God's children. That's the reality. Yes, we believe that the kingdom of God breaks through. Yes, we believe that we see God at work to, to heal people. Yes, we see God at work bringing people to faith in himself. Yes, he is the God of the miraculous, so we see something of that future kingdom, which is heaven, where there will be absolute perfection breaking into the now, but we don't get the perfect in all its fullness now. We don't get that now. We live in a fallen world. However, the suffering that these verses refer to go even beyond that. I'm just going to read them. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. The suffering that these 
verses refer to is a, is a suffering that the followers of Jesus are subjected to because they are followers of Jesus. Now that's a hard pill maybe for us to swallow. The context here is that the leaders of the synagogue, the leaders of the synagogue who uh, were the sort of people who had been responsible actually for, for, for Jesus being condemned, now are very proactive in persecuting and indeed uh, throwing out of the synagogue and in making life difficult for anyone who would profess to be a Christian, anyone who would follow the Lord Jesus. So much so that one Bible commentator has described that what was happening here is that the gospel had become uh, such that it was such an offense to the leaders of the synagogue that for them, the synagogue had become the institutionalized center of enmity to the gospel. Religious people can oppose the gospel. Religious people do sometimes oppose the gospel. And we need to be aware of that. And in this context, people were expelled from the synagogue for following Jesus. We read in John chapter 12 that this was happening. Many, even of the authorities, believed in him. That's believed in Jesus. But, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. You might re recall that earlier in John chapter 9, I think it is, where the, the man that was blind from birth and he's miraculously healed by Jesus and uh, he's just full of this incredible miracle that Jesus has done for him and he confesses it very, very openly to the leaders of the synagogue and to the Pharisees. And we read in verse 22 of chapter 9, the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. And then verse 34, this guy who'd been healed, he's told, you were born in utter sin and will you teach us? And they put him out of the synagogue. Hostility, uh, persecution, even to the point of being put to death, can sometimes be the actual thing that happens to people simply because they are Christians. One Bible commentator says this. He said, given the character of Christianity, the wickedness of this world, and the hatred of its evil prince, the devil, it is inevitable that persecution, great and small, will arise. But Satan cannot win. It has all been worked out in the eternal counsels of God. The blood of the martyrs becomes the seed of the church. In time, God's people emerge purified and more powerful than ever. Friends, the reality is that in our culture, very few of us really have known historically and uh, anything by way of real opposition uh, when it comes to you and I following Jesus Christ. Perhaps society is now changing in, in, in many ways and uh, it is becoming more difficult to nail your colors to a mask and say that you're a Christian. It is becoming more difficult in the, in the workplace. It is 
becoming more difficult in, the, in university. It is becoming more difficult for many in different contexts. But even still, we don't really experience a lot by way of persecution. We're experiencing maybe more than we used to, but we're not really yet in a place where we're experiencing a lot. Some of you know that I had the privilege of meeting uh, some Christians from North Korea uh, over a year ago. Just read this little article, actually. I just read it a few hours ago, and I, I'll share it with you because it just struck me. It's uh, written by a lady who was sent to a, a labor camp. She was sent to that labor camp to work there. She was one of the more fortunate people in North Korea in that she had a, a better education than some. So she was assigned a job in one of these labor camps uh, in, in, in an office role. But she describes what she found in that labor camp. She was shocked with the appearances of the people in the camp because their backs were heavily crooked so that their heads were so close to their bellies. The English translation here isn't very, isn't very wonderful. There were no hairs on their heads and the frames of their bodies were all twisted due to 16 to 18 hours daily forced labor on furnace-type labor. They looked like a herd of animals slowly working. They were all Christians. It was always not permitted for them to lift up their heads because the leader of the nation had ordered that all Christians are not permitted to look at the sky. Even when they are dead, the faces must be head down uh, as they're buried in the earth. That became a regulation in a public execution they stayed down at the front of the prisoners because it was not always permitted for them to hold their heads up. They put their heads between their knees. A soldier shouted, who can survive? Believers of our great ruler or believers of heaven. Among the Christians, nobody replied to them. He became angry so that he pulled out eight believers out of them. Then he trampled their bodies and as a result, their backs, legs, and hands were broken, shedding blood. They began to groan, saying in a low voice, Lord, Lord, Lord. But nobody agreed with his mention. The soldiers were getting angrier. So they brought in a tray of furnace and poured it out over them. Instantly, their bodies were burnt out and became like charcoal. Pretty horrific, isn't it? Pretty horrific reading. Pretty, pretty horrific listening. But because they're Christians, they've suffered for following Christ. Jesus, in these verses, warns that there will be those who will suffer for following him. But let's move on. In the verses that follow, we're given the source of our strength as we live for Christ, whatever our lot. The Holy Spirit is our powerful enabler. Let me read on from verse 5 to 15. But now I am going to him who sent me, 
and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. I... I'm always, as I read these verses, sort of find it difficult to get my head around how the disciples must have felt when Jesus said to them, look, it's good for you that I'm going to go away. Uh, For them to be able to grasp that, Jesus, the one that they looked to as the righteous, holy, sinless one whose example they could follow, Jesus who they looked to as the one that was, they believed the Messiah who would free them and and deliver them and, and be their rescuer and be their deliverer. Jesus, whom they loved and had come to know and had come to spend time with. Jesus, whom they had seen perform uh, incredible miracles. Jesus, at whose feet they had sat and been taught by the best teacher that ever walked this earth. And he says, it's, it's good for you that I'm going away. Hard for them to get their head around that. But if I go away, the, the counselor will come to you. But if I do not go away, the, the, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, will not come. And for them to grasp that was, had to be incredibly, incredibly difficult. But we know that that was the truth. It was good for them that Jesus would go away and that the Holy Spirit would come. It's good for us that Jesus has returned to his Father in heaven from where he will return one day to judge the living and the dead. But that he has given and that he has left us his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit exposes truth The Holy Spirit convicts sin. The Holy Spirit convicts the sin of unbelief in Jesus. So that when we speak of Jesus, it's the Holy Spirit that enables people to know that they are not yet believing in him, that they need to believe personally in his death and in his resurrection and in his ascension and his impending return as judge. It's the Holy Spirit that reveals to us that we're independent, stubborn people that live without God, and that we need Christ. The Holy Spirit that reveals to us that the Frank Sinatra song sort of sums up today's society and indeed sums up most of us. I'll do it my way. Sin is doing life our way instead of doing life his way. 
The Holy Spirit is the one that exposes that rebellion. The Holy Spirit exposes our pride where we believe that we can somehow earn God's favor. That we can somehow make ourselves good enough to be loved by God and accepted by God where the reality is. It's his righteousness that he imputes and puts into us that enables us to be made right with God. It's the Holy Spirit who brings about even every miraculous work of God in our lives, making us more Christ-like, changing us, forgiving us, saving us, transforming us. Another one of the things that the church really has got to recapture is that God transforms lives, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, that it works. It works. Lives get to be changed. One of the wee lovely things for me, being back uh, where I grew up this last 10 days or so, was bumping into people that uh, I hadn't bumped into, some of them for over 30 years, actually. And I, I, I tend to do a little bit more of that nowadays when I'm in Donegal because I, I end up taking my mum places occasionally. And so I meet people that I wouldn't normally meet because normally it's a church sale or something that I've got to take her to. Uh, and I meet people that kind of are, go back 30 years that I knew 30 or 40 years ago. One lad, a, a lad called Philip, probably wasn't much more than a teenager when I knew him way, way back. He was just a, an average teenager. But he's clearly now a young man in his 40s who's really loving and following Jesus. Uh, and somebody made a little comment about him that, that just really struck me. They said, when that guy does business as a farmer, you know that it's going to be honest and straight. That's a real testimony as to what God has done. I went with my mum to a, a coffee morning thing. It was an afternoon tea, actually, I think. And uh, uh, an, an old man came up and he said, he discovered who I was, and he said, you'll come to the barn on Sunday. Well, the barn is a, a barn service. This guy, he's, an, he's a man probably in his 70s, and he runs this service in the barn. Not every Sunday. I think he just does it actually in the summertime. And he's about to, to have a mission for, for two weeks every night with a preacher, the old-fashioned way of doing it. And, um, but I went along to this thing, and there was about 300 people at it, uh, this barn in the middle of a field. And um, as I walked out, I was talking to the preacher. And uh, the preacher said to me, you know, Milton, that's the man that owned the barn, his name. Uh, he's been out around the whole countryside inviting people along to this, this last two weeks. And the thing is this, nobody will say no to him because they know he's a man of integrity and he's got such a great story of what God has done in his life. Transformation. Trans a transformed life. Friends, that's what God does. He transforms lives. The singer at the barn was an old guy, country and western type uh, musician. Uh, but I'll tell you something, when he got up and sang, the Spirit of God really fell. I remember when that man gave his life to Christ. 
over 40 years ago. It was the talk of the whole countryside because he was from a very Catholic background and he was a country and western singer that everybody knew. And he gave his life to Christ 40 years ago and he's lived for Christ since and he writes some of his own material. And when he sang, you just knew that this man loved Jesus deeply, deeply, deeply. Transformed by the power of the gospel. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Regardless of suffering, regardless of the state of the world, regardless of how difficult or how easy it might be in your context or in my context, the Holy Spirit is the one that enables us to live for Jesus, to live our lives and to become more like Jesus and to live our lives in such a way that we lead others to Jesus and that we make Jesus Christ known. Thirdly, this chapter teaches us that prayer is our incredible privilege and prayer is our great resource. I want to read from verse 17 and onwards. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father in your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from the Father. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. They're told here that they're to ask, that they're to pray, and that joy would be theirs if they would ask and pray in the name of Jesus. Not because the name of Jesus is some sort of magic formula, it isn't. But what's going on here is that Jesus is going to be crucified. This is just very soon before his crucifixion that, that Jesus is speaking. As John recalls these events, Jesus has been crucified. Jesus has been raised from the dead and Jesus has ascended back to his Father. Praying in his name is praying out of 
a sense of dependence that we can depend on the crucified Christ who paid for the sins of the world. That we can trust in the risen Jesus who has defeated the power of death and has defeated the powers of darkness. That he is the ascended Lord who reigns with the Father in glory. We pray in the name of Jesus who also will return one day as our coming judge. And John and the others were awaiting that return as we await that return. We pray in his name, in the merits of who he is and what he has done, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And as we pray in that way, as we pray as men and women who are filled with the Spirit and therefore praying more and more and increasingly out of a deep, deep knowledge of who God is and what God wants, then we will see God move. We pray in his name, looking to his for his kindness, for his goodness, for his love, for his power, for his salvation, for his victory. That's why we don't pray in any other name, certainly not our own name. We don't depend on our prayers, but on the name of the one to whom we pray and in whom we pray. We call out to him out of our own poverty, but confident of his victory and confident of his strength. Blessed are the poor in spirit, we're told, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Friends, there's power in his name when we really know him, when we've really given our lives to him and we're following him and pursuing Jesus Christ as Lord. When we want what he wants and desire what he desires, when we're filled and those who are going on being filled with his Holy Spirit, when our hearts are, are truly the Lord's and the Lord is truly in our hearts, we will pray the things that he desires for us and for others, submitting our lives to his will and to his purposes. And such prayer will lead to an outpouring of joy. I read just something about prayer the other day, if I can just find it and quote it. Oh, I brought the wrong bit of paper. I'd photocopied it here. Oh, here it is. One of the forgotten spiritual awakenings is the Fulton Street Prayer Revival in New York City in 1857. Financial markets were unstable. Political unrest was widespread. Maybe it was Brexit. People were spiritually disillusioned. Banks failed, bankruptcies soared, and unemployment was rampant. A businessman named Jeremiah Lamphere rented a hall on Fulton Street, putting up notices of a noontime prayer meeting in a building with little distinction. At the first prayer meeting on the September the 23rd, merely six people had shown up, but within six months, 10,000 people were gathering daily for prayer in New York City alone. Ultimately, people gathered in the thousands all across the nation and the world, in Scotland, England, Wales, Australia, Ireland, Europe, and the islands of the South Pacific. Portland and Devers shut businesses down at noon because men and women prayed. Within a year, a million souls were swept into the kingdom in America at a time when the nation's population was 30 million. 
That's 3% of the population and would be the equivalent of 10 million people becoming followers of Jesus in America today. The writer writes, I was on site at Fulton Street recently asking the Holy Spirit to release a wave of revival prayer in our nations again. Interesting. Isn't it interesting? That we pray so little actually. If we prayed about the news as much as we listened to the news, that might be a new boundary for us to set. To pray as much about the news as we listen to the news. I wonder, might we see a greater move of God? Finally, in these verses, in the last couple of verses, we're told that God's peace becomes our guarantee and our sure promise, even though suffering is a reality for the believer and for the Christian. The Holy Spirit is our enabler. Prayer is our privilege and our resource. God's peace becomes our guarantee and our sure promise. Now, that's not happiness, necessarily. That's not peace as sometimes the world understands it, or joy as the world understands it. There's nothing shallow about this peace. It's the peace of God that passes human understanding. It's the peace that knowing that because Jesus Christ is Lord and because God is sovereign, that He will work it all out in the end. We live in a world where we are quite literally friends. Let's get this. We are surrounded by hordes of demons that the devil has released into his world. Cheer up. Christ is one. Christ is one. Verse 32 to the end. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Let's hear that again. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. That in Jesus, you and I may know peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. Cheer up. I have overcome the world. Let's pray.